Well, welcome, everybody. Good to be with you. Welcome to those who are online watching right now. We're glad you're with us as well. Man, I'm so looking forward to this new series we're starting in a couple weeks. We have two more Sundays to be in the book of Acts, and then we're launching into this 13-week series called Living New, and we're going to be looking at uh, just themes of spiritual growth and maturity through the lens of what we call here the fruit of new life, which we believe are six characteristics of a growing disciple, a maturing disciple of Jesus. And uh, I'm just, I'm, man, this is just months and months, almost over a year of uh, work in the, in the making that is going to all culminate here in a couple weeks, so I'm looking forward to it. We're asking you to do three things. For you to maximize the impact of this upcoming series, we're asking you to do three things. One is, man, don't miss church. Just don't miss church. And some of you are thinking, well, I can't make every Sunday. Well, you know what? There's always an opportunity to watch live or to uh, you know, watch what you missed or podcast, so you're always in the loop. And so and don't miss any of the weeks. Second is get in a life group. Many of you are already in a life group, and this is your chance to either, you know, if you haven't been in one in a while, jump back in, uh, or if you um, just have never been in a life group, man, get in a group, connect, get in a group, because then you'll be taking what we talked about on Sunday, and you'll be able to really hash it out as a group and do some life-on-life learning together. And the last thing is we're going to have these books available for you. Uh, it's, they're homemade, man. This is, this is our homegrown, I should say. Um, this is going to be a living new series, all the lessons, and each week we'll have five personal studies for you. And so you'll be doing five personal studies on your own, and then you'll also be in life group, and then you'll also be uh, teaching as a congregation. So it's really a fully orbed experience, and I'm fully convinced that if you engage, you will have a spiritual growth spurt in your life. And we just know that when the bar is raised in our life and we go after it, there's growth. And so our hope is that you will go for it and grow as we go into the Living New Series. So I'm excited for it. Uh, You're aware. Uh, Just get prepared and be prepared to grow as we move into that. Uh, With that being said, let's move into our teaching time and let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this new day that you've given us. Thank you for an opportunity to open your word. Thank you for an opportunity to grow and learn together. God, we pray that uh, you mold us today more into an image like yours. God, help us to be new, to live new, to think new, act new. Um, God, to, to participate in new works for your glory. And so, God, uh, here's our hearts, here's our minds, here's our souls, here's our lives. Do with them as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I don't know how many of you have had this experience yet where you've had your loving family or friends light your candles on your birthday cake, let's say, and... One of the candles, or some of the candles, or all of the candles are the relightable candles. And they just love to watch you sit there trying to blow those out, right? Here's the deal. How do you know which candle is the regular candle and which candle is one that will relight? There's only one way to tell. you got to blow on it. The, the, the character of that candle is going to be revealed by the gust of wind. And so as you look at two candles, they might look the same. They, you know, they look the same. Everything seems the same. But the only way to tell the true character is when a gust of wind is applied. And then, of course, this candle, you can just blow on it all day and go, yes, I won. And within a matter of time, <laughs> that little sucker, stop it, uh, will, will um, eventually relight. And then it's just stubborn. And sometimes it goes out for a little bit. And then sure enough, there it is. Here's the thing. It takes a gust of wind to be applied to know the nature of this candle. In the same way, it takes a gust of wind to be applied to our life to reveal the character of who we are and to reveal the character of us and if whether we trust God's character. 
And so it's always been said, you've heard it said before, man, um, we are either coming out of a storm, we're in a storm, or we're going into a storm. And the storms of life reveal much about our character. And one of the things the storms of life really reveal about us is whether we trust God's character. Do we go into the storms of life and then still have the ability to say God is good and God is loving and, and God's in charge and God has uh, my best interest uh, at his heart even though this is a painful time in my life? And as we are almost concluding the book of Acts, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 27 and we're going to see this man, the apostle Paul, and he's about to go into a horrific storm. And the question is, will Paul endure? Will his character stay intact or will he get snuffed out? Will he give up on his God? Will he give up on his faith? Will he give up on believing God's in charge and God's good and all of these things? Or will God's character and his trust in God's character remain um, fixed? And so I invite you to open up your Bibles with me right now to Acts chapter 27 as we continue in this series called Voyage through the book of Acts. And as you're getting there in Acts 27, let's just get a little context to where we're at right now. Uh, we were in Acts 24 to 26 last week. And what we see at this point is we see the Apostle Paul is currently, it's about A.D. 60 or 60 A.D., and uh, he is in Caesarea, which is right on the coast of Israel. And he's basically defending himself uh, to the Roman government for all these malicious accusations given by the Jewish authorities. And he basically said, look, uh, I appeal to Caesar. And so the Roman governor there in Caesarea said, you want to go to Caesar? You want to go to Emperor Nero? Then off you go. And so now Paul is going to take this case to the highest court of Rome in Acts 27. And what we're going to do is just really work our way through Acts 27 right now. Uh, I'll summarize some parts, give a little commentary here and there. But it's a great story. It's just a really uh, fascinating story of Paul's voyage and the storm that's about to kick up. So join me in Acts 27. Here's what we see. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Dramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Let's just stop there. So here's what's about to happen. Paul's leaving Caesarea, and he's in a little boat. It's not very big. It's, it's a little port hopper. And their intent is just to kind of bump around the coast of Asia until eventually they can get to the open sea, a bigger boat would be nice, and cross over to Rome. And so we see that it's, it's uh, the Apostle Paul. We see that Luke is with him because in this chapter you hear we. And we know that Luke wrote the, the book of Acts, so he's with them. And then also this other believer, Aristarchus. Aristarchus popped up back in the Ephesus riots, and so he's a strong believer. And so they're heading out. Verse 3, the next day... We put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across to the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And so here we have, we've got Paul. We've got two of his Christian brothers with them, Aristarchus and Luke. There's a bunch of other prisoners. There's a ship crew. And then there's Julius. And he's got some soldiers with him, this Roman centurion. And now, as they bump along the coast, uh, they stopped at Sidon. He let Paul off the boat, which is not usual. And uh, he got a visit with some Christian brothers and sisters, got back on the boat. And they headed out. They find themselves at Myra. And Myra, they change boats. 
And what they're going to find themselves on is probably what is best known as an Egyptian grain boat. Uh, Egypt would, would often supply much grain to Rome. And so there was a constant uh, you know, level of boats always going up to Rome from Egypt. And so this would have been a big boat carrying lots of cargo, room for lots of people. In verse 37 of Acts 27, it says there was 276 people on board. This is a replica. Some guy built a boat that was a replica of that boat. I'm sure theirs was bigger than that, but that gives you an idea of the style of boat that Paul and his companions found himself on. And so they basically started bumping around the coast of southern Asia there until they found themselves on Crete. And they were in the southern part of Crete and they were in a little uh, port called Fair Havens. Don't let the name fool you. It's not a place, good place to be. It just wasn't ideal. And uh, it's because it's on the southern island, it's very exposed. And here's the deal. The weather has changed. Northeast Ohio people know what happens when the weather changes, all right, and what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And at this point in time, no one's got any business on a boat. Because after September, from September on, you should not be on the ocean in a boat. And what we see here is just about October. How do we know that? Look at verse 9. Paul says, or Luke says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And so it says that the fast was over in verse 9. What's he referring to? This is the Day of Atonement. Uh, we know it as Yom Kippur. This is the highest holy day for the Jewish people. This is the day where they fast, they don't work, they're uh, repenting and appealing to God for the forgiveness of sins. This is a big day. This took, took place in October. And so we know that right now it's October. And Paul's basically politely saying, guys, we got no business on a boat. Like it or not, we're in Fairhaven. I say we stay here and hang out until winter's over and then we can get on. But they're like, who are you? A, you're a preacher, you're a tent maker, and most of all, you're a prisoner. You're like, the, you're like the lowest on the boat, man. And so never mind that you've already been shipwrecked three times in your life. <laughs> never mind that you're very well traveled. We're not listening to you. And the pilot and the ship's owner said, we got to get out of here. And so they had, you know, they had a desire to get out, and the majority agreed. You know, we got to be careful when the majority wants to make the course of action for the rest of us, Right. And so uh, they head off to Phoenix. They want to get to the other side of Crete so they can be on the other side and winter there where it's more ideal. That's the game plan. What happens? Look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Play background music. Everything's going great. This is exactly what we hoped for. And then that three-letter little word pops up that changes everything. But... Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. This is basically a typhoon, okay? This isn't like, oh, a little storm. This is like hurricane action here that has come upon this boat coming down from the Northeast uh, from the land. Verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. 
Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Here's what's happening. As that wind is beating on them, as that typhoon's kicking up, it says they brought in the boat. What's that mean? Uh, all these big ships would always have like a little lifeboat, right? These are the little boats that they would tow behind them so that they could easily get on and off to get to the shore and make errands. And so they're towing in the little boat. That thing's not doing so good. So they pull it onto the ship, all right? Then it says that they um, tried to gird the ship, basically. What they would do is they were concerned for the integrity of the ship, that it would get broken apart by the wind and the waves. And so they literally, literally would run cables around the ship, under the water, around the ship, and they would tighten the ship to try to create a stronger integrity of the ship. And their fear was that this wind was going to blow them all the way south to Sirtis. Sirtis was the northern part of Africa. It was a graveyard for ships, notorious shipwrecking zone. They're like, this is it. Man, we're, we're, we can't fight the wind. It's going to blow us all the way to the, you know, the Sirtis. So let's bring down the main sail. We have to become at absolute at the mercy of the storm at this point. So they lower the sail, they lower the gear, and now they're getting ready to start to dump stuff overboard because they're concerned about how much weight they're carrying. Verse 18. So since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And they lowered the sail. They've girded the ship. They brought in the lifeboat. They're still getting beat up. They're starting to throw over everything they don't need. Extra sails, extra gear, extra cargo, whatever, whatever stuff that they don't think they're going to need for sailing, they're getting rid of it. And at this point now, huge storm is not letting up, and now they can't see the sun and the stars. Why is that a big deal? How do they navigate? How do they navigate? They have no clue where they're at. They have no idea where they're going. They are absolutely disoriented, and they're getting beaten up. They're getting beat up, and they're just going, all hope, we're not going to get saved. We're not going to make it. This is the condition that they are in. Some of us go, I have felt that way. Some of you are going, I am feeling that way. <laughs> Man, disoriented, beat up. The storm's relentless. No hope. This is the condition of what's going on at this point. Now, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Well, let's just stop there. I'm so glad Paul's human. Sometimes we look at these people in the Bible and we go, oh, they're superhumans. Like Paul was basically saying, I told you so. But I don't think he was being snarky here. I really don't think he was like, I told you so. I think what he was basically doing is going, look, remember back here when you said you're just a tent maker, you're just a preacher, you're just a prisoner, you don't know what you're talking about? Do I have your attention now? I think he was making a plea for credibility, and here's why. He has something very important to say. Look at verse 22. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Man, complete tone t change. And here's the guy that they didn't have a chance to hear at all. 
and now they're all ears. I mean, just think about this for a second. If at some point in time, right before these guys got on the ship, if someone had said, oh, by the way, as you're getting on the ship, just FYI, you're going to live, but the ship's going to get shipwrecked. How many people would have got on? <laughs> right? At that point, like, the loss of the boat's a bad idea. But now the boat's so beat up, it's like, dude, I don't care about the boat. I just want to make it alive, right? Isn't that funny? Now, sometimes a storm can start to help us with our priorities. At one point in time, we're like, oh, this is so important to me. But then in the storm, you're like, you know, who cares about that? I just want this. I just want the welfare of my family. I just want the welfare of my friends. Isn't it amazing at Fairhaven? They had no interest in listening to Paul, right? None. Now, they're all ears. <laughs> you know, he's got, he's got an encouraging message. Is it true? Don't you think that sometimes the reason God allows storms in our lives is because at first we don't listen. We don't listen to God. I've got this. I don't need to be in your word. I don't need to pray. Things are good. I've got this. And then the Lord says, oh, you got it? You got it? All right. And then the storm comes. And then we go, I don't got this. I don't got this. And then we're all ears. Lord, now you've got my attention. Is it worth it to go through the storm if for anything God gets our attention? I think so. And so now these guys have this attention and Paul inserts this encouraging message. God is going to spare all of us. We're going to lose the boat, just heads up, but we're all going to be saved. That must have been very encouraging. And what we see start to take place is they start to take soundings and they realize it's getting shallower and shallower. And we see something very interesting happen. Look at verse 30. It says, and as the sailors, these are the guys that control the boat, right? These are the drivers. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Do you see what's taking place here? Paul just stood up and said, hey, everybody, the boat's not going to make it, but God's told me that we're all going to live. Sailors just heard that, right? What are they doing? They're trying to get off the boat. They don't believe that God's going to do anything. They're going to rely on the lifeboat instead of the promise over the ship. And so now they're like, hey, don't mind us. We're just putting down the anchors back here, you know, just dropping some anchors, slowing us down. What are they doing? They're lowering the lifeboat so they can get out of there. Paul rats on them. Hey, guys, if those sailors get off the boat, I got news for you. We're not making it. And the centurions cut the lifeboat. Cut it away. So now there's, they have to trust in the promise over the ship now. <laughs> they can't rely on that lifeboat. And we see all of this take place. It's so interesting. And then what happens is, is they know they're nearing their voyage. The water's getting shallower. And, and Paul continues in the encouragement. He says, man, you guys can eat. Man, we've got a lot of grain on the boat. Let's start eating. And then let's start to lighten the boat because obviously it's getting more shallow. So they eat a bunch and they start jettisoning cardo. Look at verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. They're going to make a run at this beach, right? So they cast off the anchors, which, by the way, they found a very ancient anchor off the port of Malta. They believe it's one from the boat. And they left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. And they hoisted the foresail to the wind, and they made for the beach. But, there's that little word again, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. And the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the turf, or the surf, that too. Uh, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who would, could swim to jump overboard first and make it for the land. 
and the rest on planks or on pieces of ship. And so it was all, it was that all were brought safely to the land. Man, make a run for the beach. The ship is as light as it's going to get. No better scenario. They get stuck off the beach. Boats getting busted up. Soldiers are about to kill everybody. They're going to kill all the prisoners. Why? Because if you're a Roman soldier and you lose your prisoner, you ne- their sentence now becomes your sentence. So you have to carry out the sentence of the prisoner that you just lost. So they're thinking, they're doing the math. A lot of prisoners, all these, I don't want to do the jail time. We'll just go and take, take out the prisoners. Or sometimes they would just kill you if you lost your responsibility. But Julius stepped in and said, no, we're not going to do that. And then everybody made for the shore and they all made it. Well, where did they end up on? Let's just look into the first part of 28 for a second here. After we were brought safely through, we learned that we were at the island called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they had kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had been begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. That must have been nice. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. To which, if you were to keep reading, they go, Oh, he's not a murderer, he's a god. Boy, people are fickle, aren't we? <laughs> and as you see, his time on, if you were to summarize his time on Malta, you see he was there for three months. The whole 276 people on this boat received warmly with hospitality, and they were cared for. You know, it was getting cold, they had fires, they were getting fed. And for three months, they were fed, they were taken care of, and they got resupplied, and they were sent off. And while they were there in Malta, and Paul was doing ministry. You know, um, that, that snake bite got their attention. They kind of paid attention to him a little bit more. Uh, Paul heard about uh, Publius, which was the, the head honcho of the island. His father was sick. He went and laid hands on Publius' dad, healed him. And then, actually, you know, people were being brought to Paul to be healed, and, and he's praying, and they're getting healed. I'm sitting here thinking, it doesn't say it in the text, but if Paul's in Malta for three months, what else is Paul doing? He's preaching the gospel. He, and there's people that got saved on Malta for those three months. In fact, the two weeks on the boat, I'm convinced somebody got saved on the boat for sure. I mean, come on. It's the Apostle Paul. He's sharing the gospel wherever he goes, right? He's not being intimidated by anything. And so he just stayed busy and he did his ministry. And what we see here was a long, hard, stormy voyage for Paul. And all those were with him. All those candles were lit. The wind blew. Which ones remained lit and didn't get snuffed out? Which ones continued to trust in God? Not the ones heading for the lifeboat. <laughs> and Paul's remained lit. His character was revealed, and his character trusted God's character, that God was in charge, and that God was good, and God was going to look out for his best interests, and God was going to accomplish what he said he was going to do. And when the storms of life rage, are we like that? Can we be like Paul? Can we just say, Lord, make us like Paul, who although it was hard and difficult, we don't get snuffed out. We stay lit. We might fade a little bit, we might flicker a bit, but we stay lit, trusting in you no matter what happens. Well, here's the deal. I think we have three questions we can ask ourselves. As I look at this passage, I think there's three questions we can ask ourselves to reveal if we're trusting God during the storms. The first thing we can ask ourselves is this, am I trusting in the presence of God? Am I trusting in the presence of God? The presence of God is God saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. God showed Paul that he was with him. Now, Paul had something super cool happen. I'm a little jealous. I always get jealous when I see this stuff a little bit, if I'm going to be honest. Verse 23 says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. I love that. The God who I belong and whom I worship. 
And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of that disoriented nature, an angel showed up and said, Paul, don't worry. You're going to make it. What was that? That was God showing Paul that he was with him. They had not abandoned him. And although it was very unpleasant what he was going through, God was present. God was there. Now, Paul received an angel. I've never received an angel. Maybe you have. I get a little jealous about that. Like, Lord, it'd be kind of cool to have an angel show up and just encourage me every now and then, you know? But there's other ways that God shows up. I call these God sightings. There's other ways that God shows up in our life to say, I'm here right now. I'm here right now. And maybe it's that, that verse that you open up your Bible and it's like right between the eyes. That's just what you needed to hear. I walk, some people walking out of the service last service went, this is exactly what I needed, right where I'm at. What was that? That was a God sighting, you know, that they, they, they needed exactly. Maybe that's your case today. Sometimes it's a worship song that comes on. Sometimes it's that timely phone call or note or the stop by the friend. These things that when we're in a dark place, a difficult place, and something happens, just a little piece of encouragement, that's God saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're not alone. I have not abandoned you. We have to trust in God's presence. You know, Isaiah 41.10 is a great verse. It says, Fear not, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I love that verse. And one of the reasons I love that verse is not just because it says, Fear not, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. Basically, God's saying, Don't be discouraged. I'm God. I'm with you. But look what he says. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. You know what he doesn't say in that verse? I'm going to pluck you out of your trouble and keep you safe. Now, he might do that. He definitely does that at times. There's other times when God goes, you've got to get some spiritual muscle developed. You need resistance in your life. You need a spiritual workout right now. So the storm's going to come, but I'm not going to leave you by yourself. Instead, I'm going to be with you to strengthen you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to uphold you, but hold on because it's going to be a rough ride. Also, we think of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For why? You are with me. You rod your staff to come for me. Man, the shadow of evil, that, that's, that's not on our to-do list. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I want people around me to die. I just want death around me. I want the shadow of death to come over me. You know, like when you're in the hot sun and the shade, that feels so good. No, this doesn't feel good. And yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil because why? God's with me. I'm not alone. When the storms hit us, we got to be able to say, God, I know you're with me. I might not see you right now. I might have a hard time sensing you're with me right now, but Lord, I know, I know you haven't abandoned me. I know you haven't forsaken me. I know there's a reason you're allowing this in my life right now. I know that you're present even here. And in fact, I want to do what I call a visual testimony. By showing of hands and leave them up, how many of you have seen or sensed God's presence in difficult times? Just show up your hands. Okay, just stop and look around. Just look around. These are testimonies. This is a room full of people going, I have seen God show up. I have sensed God with me during difficult times. He's faithful, amen? He's faithful. And so we need to ask ourselves in the storms, am I trusting in the presence of God? Am I trusting in the presence of God? Can we say, God, you are with me? There's another question we can ask ourselves to see if we're t trusting God in the storm. Am I trusting in the providence of God? Am I trusting in the providence of God? The providence of God is God saying, I'm in charge. This is God's sovereignty. Providence means this. It means God's guiding, leading, caring, and sustaining in our lives. 
I'm going to say that again. Providence is God's guiding, leading, caring, and sustaining in our lives. Let's just look at some of the moments of God's providence with Paul. How do we see it? Well, let's see this. Paul was in a place where he advised, instructed, encouraged the crew and the soldiers. Yet he was a prisoner on a boat of 276 people. How is that? God's providence. He was given favor by Julius the centurion. Julius was the highest ranking man on the entire boat. Over the pilot, over the, the owner of the boat, because it was a Roman uh, mission, he had all the authority. And Julius gave Paul favor. Oh, you want to kill the prisoners? We're not. Because of Paul. Oh, Paul, you want to get off the boat as a prisoner and go visit your friends in Sidon? That's not typical, but I'm going to let you go do that. How is all this possible? God's providence. God's providence in this situation. How about this? The fact that they did stop at Sidon. Like, it's one of those little verses you go, oh, they stopped at Sidon, Paul got off the boat, had his needs met, blah, 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 right? No, no, no. Where was Paul up to this? He just spent two years in Caesarea in prison. He's not the picture of health. I mean, when you look at that passage, it said that when he went to Sidon and the Christians ministered to his needs, he probably needed nourishment and encouragement. He might have been sick, and he was able to go and get help. How is it that he was able to get off the boat, there just happened to be a community of believers in Sidon to care for his needs? Hmm, I got an idea. God's providence. God's in charge of the situation. How about this? Two weeks in a violent storm, running aground 450 miles later, and every single person making it alive off the boat. God's providence. How about this? Three months of hospitality and care and shelter along with a resupply for the next leg of the journey to Rome. God's providence. If we only needed to look at one thing, we're just going to look at one thing, say let's just try to find God's providence in Acts chapter 27 with the voyage of Paul. Here's where we'd look at. Look at the map for a second, okay? Let's look at Malta. Their boat is at the mercy of the storm out here in the middle of the Mediterranean. And out of all this blue water, they just end up, end up on this itty-bitty tiny island right there. Just so happened to land on Malta. Uh, do you get that? Like, they could have gone anywhere. And they run aground on Malta, this little dinky island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Sheer coincidence, says the you know, skeptic. God's providence, says the believer. Malta's a cool island. This is a view of Malta. Uh, they believe that, you know, he landed right here. If you look here, there's actually a picture of what's called St. Paul's Bay. This is the bay they believe and have done stuff that he landed. They probably, bro probably busted up out there, but this is the actual bay there in Malta they believe that Paul landed on. This is God's providence. God has purposes, and God has plans. And by the way, he doesn't have to check with us to get our clearance on them. You know, it says in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the man, mind of a man, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will stand. The Lord's purposes stand. Job 42.2, Job knows a thing or two about storms. He says, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. When we're in the storms, not only do we say, God, I know you're with me, we have to say, God, I know you're in charge. I don't know about you, but some of the difficult storms in my life, I just got great peace. So I just kept reminding myself, God, I know you're in charge. I have no clue why this is going on in my life, but I just know you're in charge. I know you're sovereign. And you see God's providence as you navigate yourself through that storm. And so when the storms come, do we look for God's presence and do we look for God's providence through all those things? The third question we can ask ourselves to see if we're trusting God in the storm is this. Am I trusting in the promises of God? Am I trusting in his presence? Am I trusting in his providence? Am I trusting in the promises of God? God's promises is God saying, I will do what I said I will do. 
Paul knew that God was going to keep his promise. He trusted God to keep his promise. If we were to go back to Acts 23, 11, we see God say this. It says, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord told Paul in, in Acts 23, You're going to Rome. We, as he's on the boat in the storm, look at verse 24 and 25. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So he's saying, you're going to Rome. And behold, God's granted you all those who sail with you. And the verse that's so huge, the one verse, my favorite verse out of all of 27 is verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. When we open up the Bible and we see Scripture and we see the things that God says, do we come saying, God, I believe you're going to do exactly what you said you will do. You will keep your promises. You're going to keep your promises. You know, when you go to Acts 28, 14, guess what you find there? It says, and we came to Rome. Promise fulfilled. Promise fulfilled. You know, you think about the, the promises of God. Just think about some of the promises we know about. God's promised he'd send a Savior. Check. God promised the Savior would die on the cross for the sins of mankind. Check. The Savior would rise from the grave. Check. The Savior would send the Holy Spirit to live in us. Check. The Savior would one day return to judge the earth and establish His forever eternal kingdom to be checked soon. Yeah. <laughs> right? And there's lists and lists of just promises in Scripture that God has for us. Just a few. We just know a few. God promises us eternal life if we believe in Christ. He promises us uh, that He'll provide for our needs, not our wants, but our needs. He promises us wisdom. He promises us peace. This is the nature of God. And Paul was trusting in his promises. Let's just look at a few things that reveal the contrast of Paul trusting in the promises of God. All right? Uh, when they were on this boat in the storm, the crew, doom and gloom. We're dead. We're all going to die. We've given them hope. All gloom. Instead, Paul comes up with encouragement. Why? Because he believed God is going to keep his promise. Guys, we're all going to make it. Let's eat. Let's work hard. Let's go after it. We're going to make it. He was encouraging. Why? Because he believed God was going to keep his promises. The lifeboat is a huge lesson. Just a little part of the story, but it's a huge lesson. God said the boat was going to make it. These guys wanted off the boat into the lifeboat. They trusted the lifeboat more than the ship. Right? Here's the deal. We all probably have lifeboats. We all probably have some little boat on our ship or towed behind us that we're, we have just in case God doesn't come through. Right? Maybe it's financial. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to give. Why? I've got to keep everything here. That's my lifeboat. I, just, I don't want to put myself out there to trust God. I, I'm just going to hang on to it. That's my lifeboat. In marriages, some of the marriages out there, and I hope this isn't you, but it might well be some of you, your marriage isn't going well. You've got a lifeboat. You're flirting with someone online. You're talking to that person. You're just having that little, little spark going on. Why? Because just in case this doesn't work out, I've got my backup plan. What is that? It's a lifeboat. We have all those types of things. What did they do to the lifeboat? Cut it. Got rid of it. For you and I to totally say, I trust God. He's going to keep his promises. You got to get rid of our lifeboats. Because sometimes we're trusting in our little boat instead of the promise over the ship. And we've got to get rid of those little backup plans just in case God doesn't come through. No, God will always come through. He will always keep his promises, right? We see some great verses that remind us about that. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
We see in 2 Peter 1.4, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You guys remember Abraham? God promised an old couple who had no kids that they would have huge family, lots of ancestors, all these kinds of things, right? Hebrews 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, people are like, oh, can we just take a big pencil and eraser and just get rid of that word patient right there? Can we just somehow get rid of that? And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. There's our problem. Some of us are going, I don't know if God's going to keep his promises. He hasn't yet. You've got to be patient. got to be patient. God will keep all his promises. Look. The candles are lit. The wind's going to blow. And as that wind blows, and as that storm comes in, it's going to reveal our character. And we'll either get snuffed out, or we'll just stay lit, or we'll just keep lighting up, and nothing's going to get us put out. Keep trusting Christ. The storms wail on us, guys. And there's a long list of things that we navigate and struggle with. We know that. But we have to ask ourselves, do I trust in the presence of God? Can I say, God, I know you're with me? Do I trust in the providence of God? God, I know you're in charge. Do I trust in the promises of God? God, I know you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So therefore, I can have peace, I can have joy, I can have strength, I can have endurance in the midst of the storms. Amen? Here's what I want you guys to walk away with today. Here's the life message. The storm reveals whether our character Trust God's character. And my hope for you is that you trust God's character. You know, for some of you, you don't know Christ yet. And the first step of, of being in a place where you're going to see God come through is you have to step into the boat, if you will, with God and trust His promises in your life. You know, uh, there's a prayer that you can pray. It's not the prayer that does anything for you. It's your heart that says, I want to repent, I want to turn to God. But sometimes you don't have the words you know, you can just say, if you don't have Christ in your life, you just say, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm lost. I'm a shipwrecked sinner who so desperately needs you. I believe that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose from the grave, that he alone can forgive me and make me right with you. I turn from trusting in myself today and turn to trusting in you for the forgiveness of my sins, for eternal life in heaven, for a new life here. We're going to leave that up. Those words mean nothing. There's nothing magical about that word. It's just kind of a template to say, put your own words in there that basically say, God, I need you, I love you, I'm lost, I'm broken, I'm shipwrecked, and Jesus is my only hope. I'm cutting my lifeboat, and I'm turning to you. And if you do that today, here's my challenge to you. Right after the service, uh, there's going to be a couple friends hanging out right here. They're going to have Bibles. They're going to have just some follow-up steps. If you, if you give your life to the Lord today, after the service, come right up to them and say, hey, I just gave my life to Christ. Or maybe you want to talk about Jesus. You want to talk about a relationship with God. Just say, hey, what do I need to know more about this relationship with God? And they'd love to share with you. If you're online and that's something you desire, just send us an email at connect at cvconline.org and we'd love to get in touch with you. For the rest of us who already know Christ, may our candles stay lit as the winds blow and the storms rage. And may we truly say with all of our hearts, God, I know you're with me. God, I know you're in charge. God, I know you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are in charge and you are sovereign. Your providence guides us and leads us and corrects us and shows us and reveals to us all that we need, Lord. And God, I pray for anyone here that's watching or in this room, Lord, that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, Lord. We know so desperately they need that. 
And God, maybe you've brought a storm into their life to reveal them, Lord, to reveal to them that they need you, that you've stripped them of all their human apparatus that they're counting on and all the things that they've been depending on, Lord. You've stripped them of that to show them that they have a need for you and you alone. God, would you give them the courage and the boldness and the understanding to surrender to Christ today and the courage to come up today and follow up with the next step. God, for those of us who know you, Lord, God, we know the storms rage. Lord, we ask for forgiveness when we've allowed our flame to flicker, Lord. We know that we're weak. We know that we're fragile. But you have given us the Holy Spirit. Because you live in us, Lord, we can resist and stand strong and stay lit and not get snuffed out. So, Lord, help us be faithful, like Paul, that when the storms come, we know you're with us, we know you're in charge, and we know you're going to do everything that you said you're going to do, Lord. So take our lives. Let them be offerings for your glory. Lord, take the gifts we're about to receive. Let them be offerings for your glory. Thank you for how you're changing people's lives with them. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, we all said.